Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2018 Desert Conference. Our speaker in this podcast is Victor Davis Hansen, the Martin and Illy Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is Trump's Agenda, One Year Later. It was recorded on March 12th, 2018. Thank you very much. Um, I thought to understand what's happened the first year, we might just for five minutes review how Trump got where he was. Do you remember it was June 16th, 2015, when he came down the escalator and he thought he was coming as the second coming of Christ and the media was waiting for him. And they remembered 13-1 of Revelations, the, the beast with uh, seven heads and 10 horns. And it went downhill from there. And so for the next 15 months, Trump was variously, we were told, mentally unfit, buffoonish, crude, and more importantly, he was up against the finest primary field, I think all of us had our favorites, that we'd seen. It wasn't the 2012. These were accomplished governors like Jeb Bush and Scott Walker, Chris Christie. There were magnetic young senators, Rubio and Cruz. The outsiders, Fiorina and Ben Carson, were far more impressive than um, Michelle Bachman or Herman Cain had been in 2012, and yet he just, he pretty much destroyed the entire field within about uh, four months. This is a person who had neither military nor political experience, and he thought he could be the first president to, to run without those qualifications. Well, how did he do it? And I think there were three reasons in the primary, at least. People had forgotten that for 11 years he'd been the host of The Apprentice. If you look at the market share, he was getting about 20 million viewers per week, and that was pretty much the number uh, of voters in the Republican primary that gave him that 17.5 lead. So it was directly translatable. And it also led to about a billion dollars in free publicity. In other words, that CNN, MSNBC, Fox, when you put Trump on the screen, it was like being in a gladiatorial arena. You never knew what he would say at any time to anyone, anywhere, and that gave, I think it was Les Munevs, the president of CBS, said he's a moneymaker, we love him. And then there was, of course, the liberal media establishment wanted him to be on because they were assured that they would beat him in the general and that he would be the weakest Republican candidate. Another uh, issue that was completely forgotten was that it's much harder to be a top-rated reality TV show host than to be a career politician just was. He had more animal cunning, he had repartee, he, he had mastered banter. So when he got up on that stage and a sober and judicious Rand Paul just sort of said, you're the kind of politician what's wrong with this country. You give money to people uh, for political quid pro quos. It was a very legitimate argument. Trump said, yeah, you, were, you should know. You came in my office and I wrote you a check for 10000 and at that point, you could see that he operated on a different plane than the field did. And then finally, there were four issues that Republicans, I mean, and we all believe in these things. We believe in creative destruction, the Austrian school of economics, that the free market adjudicates. Trump came in and in blasphemous fashion said, I'm worried about Youngstown. I'm worried about Lansing, Michigan. And he started this buffoonish, crude person, supposedly started for the first time in political memory using the first person possessive pronoun, our farmers. 
or a machinist, our vets. Remember that? How could a person called use those terms of endearment? And he said, I think China does not trade fairly. That's blasphemous to say that because under the free market economics, if they do cheat, eventually it's not sustainable and it will hurt them. He was saying, well, that's true, but in the short term, it's hurting us. And that resonated in these red states. Second issue was, uh, besides trade and by extension globalization, it was optional wars that we don't, remember he said, we don't win anymore. We just vomit war after war after war. And what he meant was the American people will support almost anything if, I think he quoted Al Davis, just win baby. And 17 years in Afghanistan, and then there was the, pull, the abrupt pullout after all that hard work in Iraq, and then the Libyan catastrophe in Syria was a quagmire. And he said, if we're gonna fight, let's go and win. And he sort of echoed Matthew Ridgway's dictum that the only worse thing um, than getting yourself into a bad war was losing it. Remember he said, I'm gonna bomb the SH out of ISIS. So it was a, he really squared that circle. He threaded that needle of not being an isolationist, but being a muscular Jacksonian. I don't wanna get in anywhere we can't win, but if anywhere we can win and get out, I'll do it. And that was, it, it made him immune from the charges that he was soft or he was an isolationist. Very brilliant how he had done that. Illegal immigration was sort of blasphemous too. The Jeb Bush act of love, uh, gang of eight position was that either the market would adjudicate and after a while rate wages would come up in Mexico so people wouldn't come in or employers needed him and Trump tried, he, he really demagogued the Kate Steinle issue but he, he was, had a point and he said 40% of Hispanics support me because in their schools they don't have a chance for AP anymore, they have too many non-English speakers. We forget that he made that argument, he said people get hit 50% of all accidents in Los Angeles County are hit and run. And he cited a plethora of statistics, mostly from Steve Miller, that really showed that he, far from being the nativist or the racist or the exclusionist that you would think from his crude language or his unnecessary and gratuitous attacks on the Mexican-American judge, he was making a moral argument. And he was making a practical argument. And he was saying, you know what? We've got sanctuary cities in San Francisco. We don't have sanctuary cities in Utah where they say the Endangered Species Act doesn't apply here. Or people in Provo can't say you can go in one day and buy a gun. They have to follow federal law. Why don't these people? It was always, why don't they? And it was an argument that a lot of the elites in both parties were not subject to the ramifications of their own ideology. They had enough influence and leverage and money of telling you to do one thing, Nancy Pelosi telling you that your tax cut or your business's bonus of 1,000 was just crumbs as she went back to her Napa, Napa Valley palatial uh, Florentine estate. And he really hit that. And they could not deal with it because he was a billionaire himself. And finally, besides the issues, and there were a couple others, but I want to get to this idea that he was he was gross and he had this long tie and he had the orange skin and the hair, but to middle America, it, it sort of reminded what all aging, obese men go through. <laughs> there was a universal everyman experience. Well, there's Trump again. It doesn't fit. He's eating Big Macs again. And people on the left kept thinking that people would reject that. And all they did, the more they quoted his buffoonery or his crudity or his dietary act or made fun of his... People said, at least he's not 
sober and judicious Barack Obama with his little natty suits. And he, they turned a billionaire into a populist. And whatever they thought about Trump, I, I was trying to figure out this phenomenon all during the primary, and I talked to somebody who has a custom shredding operation that shreds brush and, and almond and vine rows. And he says, you know, he's a very learned guy, and he said, Trump will never go into a black audience and fake a black accent the way that Obama did. And he did, you remember that? He'll never be like Hillary and go down there and, and drink boiler mares and say, you all. Whatever he is, he's authentic. And I think that was one of the reasons that he resonated in the primary. So everybody said he couldn't win, and then panic set in because the Democrats and liberals had helped create Trump, they thought, with this exposure. And then they found um, that he was running against Hillary, and he was 12 points behind for most of the early general election. He was outspent, I think the figures were 790 million to 380 million, almost two to one. Uh, one of the, I'm a big critic of the Mueller investigation, but one thing people that are critical of Trump, how in the world to run a, a presidential campaign do you get Corey Lewandowski and Carter Page and George Papadopoulos and Paul Manafort in the same team? I mean, it was a confederacy of dunces. And, and yet he, 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 he accessed Hollywood. I was sitting in my... Uh, I was sitting in my Selma farmhouse and the editor of National View called and said, well, we've, we've decided after the Access Hollywood we're going to have an editorial demanding that he withdraw. I said, demanding that he withdraw? Are you crazy? He's going to win the debate. He's always good when he does that. It's 10 years ago. It's like he says. I mean, he's crude. He's callous. You get, he's offended. And, and they almost wrote that editorial. But he won that debate. Only the genius of Steve Bannon would have brought all of Bill Clinton's former victims and paraded them right in front. Every time Hillary looked, she saw them, and it was just, it was a reminder that she's, she was. So he, he, he won a very shocking, uh, and I don't, I don't think we really appreciate, we go back, go back on election eve when Nate Silver, the genius pollster on the left said, very sober way, said, if you remember on TV, he said, well, tomorrow's election, I think Trump has 27% chance. The New York Times had three and five. And everybody got angry that he'd sold out by giving Trump 27%. So they, it was just a foregone conclusion that he was going to win. And then he did the unimaginable. He won. And it wasn't just that he won. Everybody says, well, Hillary won the popular vote, or only got 46% of the vote. But he didn't have the money. He had no expertise. He didn't have the pollsters. He didn't have an incumbent president warping, as we know now, with the DOJ and the warping sort of the deep state apparatus on her behalf. He, I mean, this is a person who had been first lady, senator, secretary of state, run for president already. He had none of that. He should have been wiped out by 30 points, and yet he won. And you can really, we'll get to a second why he won, but at least on the demographics, he had a very bizarre way of looking at the electoral college map. We were told that demography is destiny. The white population had slipped to 67% of the population. New Mexico had flipped blue, Nevada had flipped blue, Colorado had flipped blue. If you go back and read what Trump actually said, 
it's, it's quite amazing. I, I've been doing that lately. He said, I've got some super electoral college math. I can't tell you what it is. And it, everybody just laughed it off. And then they talked to some um, Kelly on Conway and people, and it was this. Texas is red no matter what I do, and Colorado, I mean, California is blue, whatever they do, and that's where most of the Latinos who supposedly are going to vote in mass don't like me. But even if they did vote in mass, I'm a jefe, I'm a leader, so maybe I can pick up a higher percentage, and he did, than any president on the Republican side since George W. Bush. And what he was saying is, I don't have to pick up much of a minority vote, because when the Democratic Party has transmogrified into the progressive party, who can't finish a sentence without using the words white supremacy, they are creating an enormous backlash. And economically, they, the winners of globalization are here on the coast or on the corridor of California and the East Coast, maybe a little bit about the Great Lakes. And those, those states in between, Michigan, Wisconsin, Ohio, Iowa, Indiana, North Carolina, that's where the election is always determined. A Republican had not won Michigan and um, Wisconsin since Ronald Reagan. Even Georgia H.W. Bush didn't win it. More importantly, the, the Republicans had been very successful during the Obama administration at the state and local level, but they had lost five out of the last six presidential popular votes. No Republican at the presidential level had even won 51% of the vote since 1988. What I'm getting at is they had messages and they had organizations, but they were, whether it's fair or not, they were nominating a Bob Dole, a Mitt Romney, a John McCain that fit a particular left-wing stereotype that was easily caricatured. John McCain doesn't know how many mansions he has. Mitt Romney never talked to anybody in the elevator. Trump came along, Mitt Romney's a vulture cat, all these very unfair attacks on very good people. Trump comes across and said, hell, he's, he's, he's a billionaire. He says, no, I'm not, I'm worth 11 billion. <laughs> and he lied. So when Obama would say, would say, you know, you didn't build that, or at some time it's not the time to profit, Trump was basically saying, it's always the time to profit, and I built everything I did, and anything else. So he was, he was not ashamed of who he was. And that resonated with American people. And one vote in Ohio, one voter in California, as you know, was worth 100 of us. We don't count in these states that don't have, and he understood that. A better way of looking at it is, uh, as a military historian, it was sort of like Hillary had expeditionary armies far from home. So she had fronts in Georgia, she was gonna flip Georgia, remember? And she was gonna flip Arizona. In other words, they were fighting Vietnams and Iraqs Why? Trump was in a B-52 carpet bombing her hometown in the red states of the Midwest, and he flipped them. So everybody was worried about, will she get a, a huge landslide mandate? And meanwhile, he had been busy in about 12 states. It was, very, it was brought up to me, I was at a dinner when Peter Till was being attacked by a very prominent person and said, oh, Trump doesn't have any analytics, no data. And he said, yeah, he does, I, I helped him plan them. And he said, we don't, we don't want to win all 50 states, we just want to win 11 or 12. And that's what we're working on. That's, and so he, these messages of political correctness, optional wars, illegal immigration, globalization, fair, uh, rather than just open and free trade, really appealed to the states that had the electoral votes that make a difference. So then he was elected. 
I always, I don't want to pick on David Brooks, he's a very nice person, but my guide to the, the whole Trump phenomenon was David Brooks. Because he told me, he had, I read his New York Times, he said he had absolutely zero chance to be nominated. He said he would destroy the entire Republican Party and lose in a landslide in the general election. And then when he was elected, he wrote a column in January, uh, excuse me, November, that said Donald Trump will not last his first year. He'll either be impeached, removed because of the 25th Amendment, or resign, and the whole thing was a hoax for his uh, merchandising of his name, he said. That didn't turn out true anyway. The Never Trump right said that he was going to, remember, he was going to govern as a liberal. He would appoint his, I'm, this is a statement by a very prominent pundit, he'll appoint his sister to the Supreme Court, a liberal federal judge in New York, that he will, um, he'll probably raise taxes, he will be very soft on abortion, et cetera, et cetera. What happened? Over the next rocky, this 14th month period, he has done things that, whether you believe that he removed 14 regulations for every one or 62, depending on how you interpret, that was a massive change. He opened up ANWR, he opened up federal lands for fracking. He shepherded through the most comprehensive tax reform package and cut in Reagan, since Reagan's years. He jawboned companies to stay, not to outsource, not to outshore, sometimes in a demagogic fashion, but nevertheless he did that with some effect. Uh, and the result is if you look at business confidence, consumer confidence, GDP, we haven't had 3% GDP since 2006. We could very easily get it this year. Remember this, the conventional wisdom was you cannot get 3% GDP in an aging workforce, a globalized economy, and a technologically dependent uh, workforce. You just can't do it anymore. And yet we may do that. Stock market could not go over 20,000, we were told. You could not go below 4% in a peacetime economy as far as unemployment. We may break all, we've already broken some, we may break all of those. We're, suddenly there's no, Remember drill, baby drill in the 2008? Obama said you can't drill our way out of this problem. Peak oil is here to stay. I haven't heard peak oil used in two years. We just passed Russia as the largest oil producer. Uh, excuse me, Saudi Arabia, we're gonna pass Russia next year. We're gonna be the largest natural gas coal producer and oil producer, not just in the world, but in history. It's quite a phenomenon. Part of the reason, I think, is when we try to find individual aspects of the Trump agenda, they still don't quite add up. And I think a lot of it's because a lot of it was psychological. If there is such a thing, as our economists tell us, of animal spirits in the economy, Trump's assumed that America was not in decline. He looked around, he said, its universities are rated top in the world. It's got more energy than anybody. It's cheaper to make aluminum here than anywhere in the world. We've got really, we have a good workforce. We don't have revolutions, we don't have coups. We're the only country that has a multiracial society. We've got a great military. What's the decline stuff? It's psychological. And I think what he was trying to say was if you have a leader who says now is not the time to profit, there will be a time, but it's not now. Or he says at some point you've made enough money. Or he says you didn't build that. Basically the state built it. That sends a psychological message to people like yourself who are entrepreneurs or have capital that, you know what, 
that's a coded euphemism for taxes are going to rise, there's going to be more regulation, and psychologically and psychosocially, I'm going to be denigrated for being successful. It's just a fact. And people in their daily lives insidiously, incrementally make decisions about what to buy, how to invest, who to hire, based on that impression they get. If you have somebody who comes across saying, you're great, I'm going to cut your taxes, I'm going to cut capital gains, I'm going to cut the corporate tax, we're going to be great again, then you get the impression just the opposite, and you'll take risk in a way you didn't. So a lot of this boom can't be accountable because he's only been in office for 14 months, but he's changed the climate, sort of like Reagan did between 83 and 84 where the economy grew at 7%. Some final observations. I think he's... Uh, given us a dilemma, and that is how we define political wisdom. Because a, a politician's main credo, the laws that they live by, is you wait to what the other person says, the other opposition politician, and then you maneuver right to one side of it. So he says he doesn't like magazines, and you say, well, like sort of will like magazines, but fewer bullets. You try to trim and you try to uh, push him into a corner. You don't say something first with complete bombast. Like, I'm gonna lower the, the buying age to, I mean, raise it to 21. That's just not what you do. That's what Trump does. He, he doesn't, he's, he just comes out and says something, and this is considered to be very wrong, but not if the population has been inured and nursed on 30 or 40 years of this blow-dried, fluffy politics. They wanted somebody to be hated. When, when you have somebody like Trump, you're saying, people start to ask themselves, which, is, which takes more intelligence, to get a PhD or to survive in the um, cutthroat world of Manhattan real estate where you have to deal with crooked unions, community organizers, green environmentalists, politicians you have to pay out, and come out of that and not go broke. The left didn't get it. They kept saying, well, you know, he went broke six times. The question is, how did he go broke one, two, three, four, five, and keep coming back? Because it's not easy to do that. In our field, if you gave us a billion dollars and said, could you be a real estate, no PhD I know could do it. It's, it, it took a different talent, and people were not from a background in which they were either intellectually or ethically capable of appreciating those different talents and skill sets. We just hadn't seen it before. And second, uh, the Ivy League, Stanford, Berkeley, and the schools of diplomacy and law, which are the incubators of statesmen, have a certain judicious and polished way of thinking. It's been very strange because outside of the United States, most of the world, Kim Jong-un, Vladimir Putin, Chinese apparatus are thugs. And yet, we're supposed to say, we speak in a particular diction because we're better than they are, we're more sober than they are, we're more sophisticated than they are. And if our allies aren't quite doing 2%, the post-war order says, well, you know what, it's our responsibility. Or if China's cheating on trade, we, we sort of say, well, it's not sustainable or it's gonna give cheaper prices. So this guy comes along and he just questions everything because he's not, he hasn't taken money from anybody. He's not invested in the way people speak, usually about diplomacy or military affairs. And he just says, Europe's got a bigger economy than ours. If you take the whole EU, why are we subsidizing their defense? Why don't they do it for us? Who would ever say that? <laughs> Europe's gonna subsidize our defense? But then when you start thinking about it, 
it makes sense. Mexico has an, does Mexico have an open border with Guatemala? No, they're pretty tough. Why, aren't they, why, why can't we be like Mexico? It was always, why can't we do what they're doing? And the establishment said, you can't do what they're doing because you're the leader and you have to be better than they are. And he said, go to Youngstown, Ohio and tell people they're the leader. Go to rural Bakersfield and tell people they're the leader. They're not. They're not, they're not winning anymore. And so it brought up a second question. What is morality? What is morality? The traditional Washington thinking said morality is not saying crude, horrible things on an access Hollywood tape. Morality is not Trump University. Morality is not Trump stakes. Trump comes across and says, no, morality is not signing an Iran deal that's going to put all of us at risk, especially the nation of Israel. That's not, that's not moral. Losing 4,500 dead in Iraq and 50,000 wounded and injured, and then finally stabilizing that country for three years, and then pulling it out for a cheap talking point for re-election in 2011, that's not moral. Having a hot mic with an outgoing Russian president, when you say, I tell Vladimir I will be more flexible after the election on matters of missile defense. Missile defense, the key issue that we have been lagging, that's not moral. It was sober. It was presented by somebody who looked quite natty, well-dressed, well-spoken, Harvard degrees. Trump could, couldn't have done that. But what he was trying to say is that, look at what I do and not what I say. And finally, the other question that I think his first year success, and I only talked about the domestic, I just want to finish in a second with the foreign policy just for a minute or two, then I'll open up to questions, was he's not a linear thinker. In other words, he doesn't start from premise one, two, three, or he doesn't look at examples and inductively come up for occlusion. He's all over the place. So if he says that a country is a S-H-I-T whole, then he brings up that whole issue and he makes you think, prove that it's not. And you know that the people who criticize Trump in the media don't want to go to Haiti. And if they do, they're like the... <laughs> well, I mean, if they, they do, they're, they're, they're like the Clintons. They'll go down to Haiti to make money at the expense of public housing and capitalize on their cell phone franchise. So what he was saying is, I represent your darkest ideas, and you don't dare mention them, but I will mention them because I don't have, I'm not invested in your world. So make fun of me all you want, but then listen to what I say and see if you can refute it. And uh, that was very telling on illegal immigration. I had spent 21 years teaching mostly Mexican-American kids to, to Greek and Latin, French and German, sent the professional school. So, uh, it's possible to assimilate, integrate very well, but I've also been hit three times by drivers who left the scene of the accident. No license, no registration. So when I hear him, you know, it was, and say that we're not always letting in the best people. If you, it's easy to say if you're a, like I am at Stanford, oh, that's so crude, but go to the Selma City Bank and stand in line when somebody has to make his mark because he can't write his name when you have somebody from Nigeria with a PhD or an MD or a law degree waiting eight years to come in legally, is that moral? So he really changed this question of more morality and wisdom. And finally, on foreign policy, we had lost deterrence. By that I mean the fear that you can instill in somebody not to try something stupid because the known retaliation will be so overwhelming 
that the gambit would never be worth it. So when you set a red line in Syria and you don't enforce it, when you tell Iran five times to stop the proliferation according to dates and they don't do it, when you tell Putin not to go into Crimea or not to go into Ukraine or not to bully the Baltic and they don't listen to you, you should either, I mean, the traditional wisdom was speak softly and carry a big stick or the Obama would be speak loudly and carry a tiny stick or speak softly and carry a soft speak. Trump came and talked loudly and carried a loud stick. I mean, that's what he did. And incrementally, we're seeing vis-a-vis, -vis, I think, with China and with Putin and with the Iranians and with ISIS and with uh, North Korea that there's no pretense that we're ecumenical, that the world's a wonderful place, the UN is great, transnational organizations are great. Uh, what he's saying is that we live in a Manichaean dog-eat-dog -dog world. We're going to be very friendly to our allies, and we're going to be very angry and mean to our enemies. And you have to decide which side you're on. And that's just, a, that's just sacrilegious in Washington. And yet we know that that is, I know it's, we know that the world doesn't run according to the tenets of the Sermon on the Mount. It just doesn't. I wish it, it was. But we hadn't seen that before. And so the final thing I'll leave you was, is this style that bothers us, because we were stuck with this existential question. I think it was uh, Joseph Epstein in the Wall Street Journal had a very penetrating essay and said, I, he quoted a lot of things that Trump had done and a lot of things that Trump had said, and he said, I disagree with everything he said, and I agree with everything he's done. And he was trying to square that. And I don't believe that, you know, the, the rabid Trump supporter says he plays three-dimensional chess. I don't think he does that. I think he does do one thing, and that is he understands that he understands better than people we've seen in a long time human nature. That if you go into a negotiation and you demand everything and people scream and yell or the press says that you're mean, that you want 90% of the deal, then if you get bargained down to 55%, that's a good deal. If you go into a negotiation or you're with the media and you scream and yell at them and make them uncomfortable, they want to get out of there one way or the other and cut the deal. If you act like you're crazy, remember we've, we've actually had a doctor examine Trump's mental fitness. <laughs> and then you remember what he said? He's on two occasions, he said, I answered all 20 questions, I'm mentally fit. And then when rumors came that Rex Tillerson said he was a moron, he said, I challenge him to an IQ test. <laughs> so what I'm getting at is that he, he is able to startle, unsettle people in the media. And uh, when he says these names, Sloppy Steve, Crooked Hillary, Lying Ted Cruz, they, they stuck because there were elements of truth in them. They were always retaliatory, they were not preemptory, but they reminded people that he has a very crude but accurate insight to human weakness and he knows how to exploit it and he knows he has a a all-over shotgun approach that confuses people so well, and most importantly, and then final, he was dealing with an establishment of elites that had lost any credibility and did not deserve the privileges and esteem that they demanded. When I turned on the TV once, and I, in succession, over two hours, I saw Brian Williams, who was an absolute fabulous who had to be fired, say that Trump was unfit, and then I turned to a CNN commentator, Fareed Zakaria said Trump was unfit, and I said, this man has been caught two times for plagiarizing. 
Then I picked up the New York Times and Marie Dow said she was, he was unfit and I saw that she had plagiarized. I said, is there anybody that has the moral high ground with Donald Trump in the establishment? And when I look at people who lie five times on television like Susan Rice or say the Bergdahl deal was great or they jail a video maker, put him a year, Mr. Nakula, I, I think that Trump's point that I am chemotherapy, but you're suffering from cancer. And I will kill the cancer a day before I kill you. Thank you very much. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.